Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Investing comes with risk. It can't be avoided, but it can be understood and planned for. There are many separate risks that investors have to navigate, from the volatility of markets to collapsing companies. How we choose to respond to these risks is ultimately what will determine our success in building and preserving our wealth. I want to understand the different types of risk that we face, how best to measure and quantify them, and what strategies we can employ to protect our portfolios. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, what happens if my broker goes bankrupt? Okay, let's get into it. So when we get started investing, I think we all understand that there's risk involved, but we probably just think in general terms that something could go wrong, maybe badly wrong, and we'll be sort of just left crying on our own thinking, why didn't I listen to Romin? He seemed to know what he was talking about. But it's a big topic, and today we're going to cover some of the specifics of what risk is. So maybe let's take a step back, and Romin, what do we mean in general terms when we talk about risk? I think the general idea is that it's when an investment doesn't meet your expected return. In other words, there's some kind of large shortfall. That's really what you're concerned about. But the thing is, it's a kind of flip side of return, right? So there's this kind of weird relationship between return and risk, where if you have a very small risk, you're almost guaranteed a small return. Whereas if you have a very high risk, you're not guaranteed a high return, which is why I think a lot of people go wrong there. You know, do you want to sleep well at night or do you want to eat well? So really, it's a kind of a trade-off between those two things. So higher risk gives you the possibility of higher returns. Yeah, so it's kind of finding a balance between ridiculously high risk, where that would be something like betting on double zero on the roulette wheel, and then, you know, the kind of very safe thing at the other end of the spectrum, which is just betting on black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a recommendation, by the way. So what actually is risk, though? So I often see people equate it to volatility, like how much does an investment typically go up and down in a year, something like that. But is that really what we mean? Well, it's certainly an, a useful definition, because I think the thing about volatility is it's easy to calculate. You know, you can stick it into a spreadsheet. There's a function called SD, which calculates the standard deviation. And that just tells you the typical annual percentage price move of an asset. Now, the bigger that percentage price move, the higher the risk, the probability that you're going to get a big down move. But it also increases the probability of a big up move. So if you have an asset which is essentially dead, i.e. cash, the volatility is zero. But then if you have an asset which is very risky, like Bitcoin, the volatility is, you know, 80%. So in a typical year, it'll move up or down 80% and you shouldn't even blink an eye. So really, this is also giving you a kind of calibration of surprise. If you see a certain percentage price move, how surprising is it? Is standard deviation the best way to measure volatility? Because I know there's lots of other things people refer to, like the Sharpe ratio, for instance, or R squared. There's lots of nerdy terms. I don't really know what the difference is. <laughs> I absolutely love it, obviously. It's, it's meat and drink for nerds like me. And in fact, you know, I cut my teeth in finance, starting in risk. That's why you're super cautious. You've seen everything that can go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I can calculate how badly it could go wrong. But I think the thing to understand is that there is no perfect measure of risk. All you can really do is try and get a handle on it and not take too much risk. Because if you do, you potentially could have a catastrophic loss. Really, you shouldn't try to gamble. This is the big difference. I mean, the whole point of understanding risk is understanding the difference between trading or gambling and investing, which is steady long-term returns. 
those are very different approaches to allocating capital. But involve some of the same processes. You're pushing the buy button in both cases, just how frequently you push it. That's right. Buy and sell. You know, if you buy and sell a lot, the chances are you're gambling. Whereas if you press buy and leave it for 20 years, that's investing. So that's the <laughs> fundamental difference. But of course, the thing you buy also matters. And how you combine the things which you buy also matters, as we'll see in a sec. It's interesting you mention standard deviation and measuring the sort of annual up or down movement. Because when I think of risk, I don't really care so much about the up movement. I care, is there going to be a big down movement? And I think there are some measures that just look at the downside. Yeah, I mean, there's something called downside deviation, which just looks at the bottom half of the distribution. But ultimately, the reason why risk is so difficult for people to get their head around is that it's about probability. You know, what's the chance of something happening? So if we flip a coin and you want an outcome, say heads, there's a 50% chance you're not going to get that outcome. Whereas if you buy, say, a stock and you want the price to go up, well, it turns out that over a one-day period, the probability of it going up is also around 50%. If you plot the distribution, it's pretty shocking when you first do it. You think, well, how does the price go up? But if you look really carefully at that distribution, it's slightly shifted to the upside. And that's what generates the long-term drift for equity. And it's just a tiny asymmetry in the daily returns, which means it's slightly more likely to be positive than negative. And it's why it's so hard to make money trading, right? It's because the fees you pay for trading are going to offset that very small asymmetry. Yeah. And really, if you're, if you're betting over a one-day period, you might as well be betting on the flip of a coin. But that's the huge difference between betting over a short period of time and a long period of time, because over a long period of time, that drift starts to really dominate the returns. And it becomes an exercise not in coin flipping, but in simply riding that gradual ascent of profits, but also prices. And that's the game you can win. And I think that's the fundamental thing about risk, which is it also matters the horizon that you're looking out over. So if you're looking out over a one-day horizon, the risk is you know, <laughs> huge. If you look out over a horizon of, say, 10, 20 years, which most people's investment horizon is when they start investing, then suddenly the risk is that you'll underperform because you haven't taken enough risk. So suddenly bonds become very risky and so does cash over that kind of period. I think that's the problem I have with a lot of default pension allocations with your employer. I know when I looked at mine many years ago, you know, they're taking money out of your paycheck each month, they're pushing it into a defined contribution pension and they automatically put in a default investment. And I think when I looked at it, less than 50% was in equities by default. So obviously I quickly <laughs> changed oh my goodness. up that allocation massively. But so many people are going to massively underperform. I think they're just designing the portfolio because they're scared people will do the wrong thing behaviorally if they see a big loss at some point. Yeah, because they'll get scared and maybe decide to take money out or something if they can. But the first thing anyone should do is go and look at what your pension is actually invested in. Oh, gosh, yes. And I think that's one of the best things you can learn is how different assets respond and their long-term returns and also their risk. You know, if you buy this thing, how crashy is it? How badly are you going to suffer at some point? Because once you know, you can kind of mentally prepare for it. But if you don't know, then, you know, it can be catastrophic. And it's kind of like getting to know a friend. You know, if you have friends, you know what they're like. Are they volatile? Are they the kind of person who flies off the handle? Or are they very sedate and steady? 
And asset glasses are just the same. Bonds are your best friend, aren't they, Robin? I do love bonds because they're boring like me, yeah. <laughs> your dinner party full of bonds. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have government bonds and I'd have corporate bonds. Tips, you stay in the corner. <laughs> yes, you're not welcome. But uh, convertible bonds, yeah, they're crazy. <laughs> It's interesting though, isn't it? Like you've got all these different asset classes and they all have kind of different risks associated with them. Like the risks for bonds are quite different from the risks of equity. So maybe let's talk about the different risks. Now, the one that immediately comes to mind when you start investing is what I would call market risk. Like that the whole market, let's say the stock market could take a massive 50% fall and that drags pretty much all stocks down with it. Yeah, so market risk is exactly as you say the price movements that you typically get with an asset. And volatility is a pretty good measure of that. There are other measures which investment banks use, things like value at risk. But really, all they're trying to get a handle on is how crashy is it and how bad could it get? Now, the question that people ask is, how much is the most I can lose? Well, of course, it's 100%, right? For a, for a single stock, that's a kind of stupid question, because if the company goes bust, yeah, you'll lose everything. Okay, more interesting question. How much could I lose if I just invested in, let's say, the S&P 500? Well, again, I mean, in theory, you could lose everything. But with an index, it's very unlikely to go to zero, because it is diversified. What would the world look like if it went to zero, the S&P 500? Um, would there be a world? Like, could it go to zero? I think it would take such a catastrophic event... I mean, we would be talking about civilization breaking down. Yeah, I think that's right, isn't it? It's like a risk that's not worth really thinking about in terms of investments because you're just looking at guns and ammo and cheese at that point. But even if there was, say, I mean, I was I was looking today at, at things like the risk of a civil war in America. There are various books that have just been published about it because some people are saying it's actually now a possibility. But even if that happened, you know, the stock market would still be OK, I think. You know, it would take a hit. Of course it would. But would it still exist? Yeah. I think as long as they were still selling products, ammo, <laughs> soup, <laughs> cheese, then there'd still be profits and there'd still be a stock market. So realistically, we can take that sort of fall to zero off the table. Yeah. You know, every decade or so, it seems that we have a 50% fall. But could you get a 90% like you had in the Great Depression? It's possible. It would take a huge event to cause it. But I think, you know, the probability of it is very low. That's the point, isn't it? Yeah, that's the point, which is that people actually get scared of equity because of stories they've heard or maybe, you know, there's a newspaper article they've read or maybe their friends lost everything on the stock market. But I think you always have to temper these outcomes by looking at probability. So this is why I came up with this 2616 rule. You know, what's the chance of a certain fall for the S&P over the coming year? So the really big fall, 30% or more, the probability of that is just 2%. And yet that's the kind of outcome which people are kind of building their portfolios around, which makes no sense at all. But it's interesting. So we say there's only a 2% chance of that over a year. It feels like more than that because it feels like it happens every 10 years or so. But do you mean like it might recover by the end of the year? Well, it only looks over one year horizon. So from any starting point and any point in history, if you look one year ahead and this is for data going back to 1870, what's the chance that it's going to happen based on historical outcomes? But you mean what's the chance it will be 30% lower in a year's time, not that it might have an intra-year drawdown? Yes, that's right. Okay. So, you know, 20%, the probability of that is higher, 6%, and then the probability of 10% or more, which is a correction, is 16%. So I think that's really important to understand those risks and understand that, you know, a really big drop is very unlikely. And even if it does happen, you should just buy more. Yeah, so that's market risk if you're sufficiently diversified. 
And then if we are more concentrated, whether it's in specific sectors or even specific stocks, there's something called beta, isn't there? Which is like, how much do you amplify or temper that market risk? You say beta, I say beta. But but the idea here (laughs) is that, so if you've got a beta of one, you just track the benchmark. So if you buy Global Equity Tracker, the beta by definition will be one. So, you know, you have high beta stocks, low beta stocks. A very low beta stock would be something very boring like Campbell's Soup, where, you know, if the market goes up 1%, it'll only go up a little bit. And if the market goes down 1%, it'll only go down a little bit. So, you know, the beta will be less than one. And then if you have a small cap, some crazy small cap, which is very exciting, you know, the beta can be very high. Pension craft? Obvs. <laughs> When's your IPO, Robin? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. <laughs> But, 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 but small caps generally have a higher beta. So that's a really key thing to understand. If you're going to buy high beta stocks, it's great doing an upswing in equity markets globally where there's lots of risk appetite. But in a down market, you're going to get really badly hit. So beta is kind of a measure of volatility then? It'll give you volatility because it'll scale up the risk. Certainly with high beta stocks, the volatility will be higher. So there's something related called concentration risk, isn't there? Which is when you're constructing your portfolio, the less diversified it is, there's kind of an inherent risk built into that. Whatever you concentrate in. So that's on any dimension, really. Are you concentrating in a single stock? Well, there it's very risky. Or a single bond, or a single currency, or a single country. So a lot of people, when I speak to them from the UK, if I look at their company pension, then it's often hugely skewed towards the UK, even though the UK is actually smaller than Apple in terms of market cap. Apple makes up over 4% of global markets, and the UK is roughly similar, if not a bit smaller. So this huge overweight for one country, I think, is a problem, particularly if that country underperforms, which it has done for some time now in the UK. So any of these different dimensions can actually increase your risk. If you increase the concentration risk, there's a risk that you'll underperform global markets. You could outperform, it's got to be said. I mean, that is the only way to outperform, isn't it? You have to take a concentration risk. Because if you have zero concentration, then you just buy the global markets. And by definition, the beta is one. And if you go down to the single stock level, then there's idiosyncratic risk, isn't there? There's things that can just randomly happen to your company that you've invested in. The management might do something ridiculous. They might get hit by an asteroid. They might go bankrupt. Or more likely, there's some kind of fraud, right? You know, they could just lie about their results (laughs) or they could just do something dodgy or their sector could get hit. Or they could have built a product which then sort of kills a load of people and they get sued out of existence. Yeah. I mean, all all of these things are kind of unpredictable. And this is why diversification is a good thing, because you can actually remove some of the risks by buying lots of stocks. You know, so once you've got about 20, 30 stocks, the idiosyncratic risk actually diminishes very significantly. But then you're left with this kind of basal level of risk, which you can't get rid of. And that's the kind of systemic risk, if you like. That's what we just have to live with. Yeah, that's just the kind of nature of the beast. It is inherently uncertain what's going to happen in future and equities volatile as a result. And what other risks are related in terms of investing in stocks and these kind of products? I think some of the risk is to do with liquidity. Now, liquidity is, I think, poorly understood because you never really appreciate liquidity until it's gone. But it really, it's just your ability to sell an asset. So in developed markets for equity, if it trades on an exchange like the London Stock Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, whatever then it's very liquid. There are lots of market makers who are always willing to buy from you, even if it's at a crazy price. It'll never be a situation where you can't sell the thing. 
Whereas if you look at high-yield corporate bonds, for example, junk bonds, that's a market which effectively shuts down in a crisis. You know, it happened in March 2020. That's why the Fed had to step in. It happened in 2008 when we had the credit crisis. And really, if you've got the asset, no one's willing to buy it from you during those crises. So you've just got to watch the price ticking down, down, down. You don't really know what the price is because it doesn't trade, but you know it's depressed. That's an illiquid asset. Illiquid is bad and liquidity kind of disappears in crises. And is that one of the main roles of a central bank is to provide liquidity when it does dry up? It's the kind of liquidity provider of last resort, if you like, yeah. Yes. And in fact, they did buy junk bond ETFs this time around because that was a market that pretty much seized up. But I think that's an important risk to understand because you should be compensated for illiquidity by receiving a higher return. That's the way risk and return works. Sometimes you don't know what's going to become illiquid, like Russian stocks suddenly became illiquid once the invasion of Ukraine happened. But you kind of knew that Russia was politically unstable, put it that way. Well, it's kind of stable, but in a terrible way. (laughs) Well, emerging markets, this is always the risk, right? Which is the political instability. That's one of the risks. But that's why if you look at the bid offer spread, that's the difference between the buying price and the selling price tends to be higher for emerging markets and it's more expensive to track. And there's just inherently political risk, right? They seem like they're more likely to do unexpected things. Yeah. Or have a revolution or nationalise a load of companies. Or instability of their currency or credit crises due to mismanagement or, you know, maybe there's some kind of coup, like you say. But, you know, in developed markets, that's really unusual. But do you think political risk has been rising in developed markets? Oh, definitely. And I think that's why those books were so interesting, because you think about the US and you think, well, you know, it'll always be steady. It'll always be rock solid in terms of credit quality. It's a unified country. But of course, it is a disparate collection of states. And even more so now, there's a divide between the kind of metropolitan elites, if you like, and the kind of rural communities. And that schism has become much larger over the last five, 10 years. So I think, you know, there is a risk of instability there, whether it comes to a full on revolution is very unlikely. Someone said it's maybe time to start thinking of the US like a rich Brazil rather than a big Sweden. (laughs) Oh, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's one concern that you should always have when you invest in, say, emerging markets. And that could be the emerging market bonds. If you see a high return for those, five, six percent, of course, it's because you've got a higher risk. Similarly for the equity. But for example, if you look at the volatility of various asset classes, if you look at Bitcoin, for example, the volatility is 74%. So the typical annual move is 74%. So you're a bit harsh on them by saying it was 80% then. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on the period you look at. But this is since 2014. Oil, 42%. So if you look at the oil fund, USO, that's 42%. NASDAQ, 22%. Large equity market like the US, 18%. And then emerging markets are slightly higher, so 21%. So roughly equal to NASDAQ would be the volatility of emerging markets. And then you get to bonds and gold, which are generally safer. So I think the volatility measures can be useful, but really it wouldn't reveal that political risk. You know, the political risk for NASDAQ is much smaller than it is for emerging market equity, but their volatility is about the same. So this is something completely unquantifiable. Some people have tried to quantify political risk, but it is difficult. It's not going to show up in vol measures. It's just something you have to be aware of. It's a qualitative risk. I think if you're buying emerging markets, 
my feeling is you really have to be diversified. It shouldn't just pile into one or two. You really want that broad sweep of emerging markets. Even China. Yeah, I mean, China was seen as something which was relatively safe until about a year ago. You know, it kind of revealed its true emerging market status, which is political instability is a real thing. Government intervention in the equity market was a real thing. And that caused huge damage to its equity market. And there have been huge outflows since. So just be aware of it. And like Michael says, try to diversify if you do have EM exposure or, or any exposure. Yeah. So now that the UK is obviously an emerging market and we're sort of <laughs> arbitrarily taxing all our oil and gas producers, it kind of demonstrates the need for diversification. As if our equity market was in good shape anyway. Yeah. No, that was weird, wasn't it? Because if you look at the returns of oil and gas sector over the 10 year period we've just had, it's lagged the market, so it's weird to target them. But anyway, I suppose there are related risks. So political risk introduces just a higher level of credit risk, but credit risk exists more broadly. Now, credit risk is harder to measure if you're talking about countries, because countries do default, but it's usually a matter of choice. You know, they have this kind of sovereign debt. They issue government bonds to borrow money to run the government. And sometimes they just say, look, we're going to repudiate the debt. We're not going to pay it. Well, it's a matter of choice if they're borrowing in their own currency. But it's hard to think of a country going bankrupt, you know. Well, didn't Sri Lanka just go and default on its debt? Does it mean that they're going to have to go and sell them, you know, and sell the assets of Sri Lanka? No. Well, they might do. Like, countries have been forced to... Well, Greece kind of did. You know, they sold Piraeus, the port, and they did kind of sell (laughs) some... I mean, I remember at the time that people were talking about selling off some Greek islands in order to raise capital, but... Sell us some more bits of the Acropolis. Whereas... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, I think they did. They actually securitised the revenue from people visiting the Acropolis in order to generate cash. But... Look, that's irrelevant. <laughs> it's very relevant. <laughs> My point is that the country doesn't liquidate, right? You don't just say, oh, look, we're just going to give up on Greece. We're just going to be no longer a country. We'll be selling ourselves to Germany. That's not going to happen. <laughs> get, we need to get some Greeks on it. They'll say that's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the anger at the time, though. But a sovereign default is very different from a corporate default. A country can't go bust, but a company can and liquidate and cease to exist. So what's the risk of that happening? And what would happen? Well, if you buy their equity, that'll go to zero. You know, you won't get paid out anything. Sad times. And this introduces the idea of capital structure, right? You have kind of equity, which gets paid out last in the event of a default. Then you get the kind of unsecured bonds, which get a small payout, or maybe there'll be preferred equity even below that. So as you ascend the capital structure, you get to the stuff which is really good at the top, where, say, for example, you've got secured bonds of the company. The value of those bonds will be secured against particular assets of the company. So those assets will be sold once the company liquidates and you'll get paid out maybe 100% of your bond worth. But then when you get down the capital structure to the equity, you'll be completely wiped out. Now, who gets paid first of all? The taxman and the administrators. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, they'll do well out of it. And the lawyers, of course. So, so I think the understanding of that credit risk is really important. And the way you measure it is to look at the credit spread of the company. So if it's issued bonds and you've got a Bloomberg terminal, you'll be able to look at those bonds and work out what the credit spread is. But roughly speaking, it's the extra income you receive for taking the credit risk of that company. The extra income relative to? Relative to risk-free bonds, which would be government bonds, which have no credit risk if you're in a developed market. Let's just take that as true, but we'll come back <laughs> we'll to come that. We'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
But that's the credit spread. So let's say you've got a junk bond. Well, there you'd expect at least four or five, and in a crisis, maybe 10, 20% extra yield for taking their credit risk. Whereas if it's AAA, one of the two companies, which is currently AAA, then maybe you'd expect, I don't know, 0.2%, 0.1% above treasuries. So that credit risk, you can measure using these credit spreads. And there's a nice little formula for turning it into a probability of default. But, you know, the bigger the credit spread, the higher the probability of default. One thing that's not measured with volatility is credit risk. So, for example, if you look at HYG, which is the biggest junk bond ETF, there's a huge credit risk with that ETF. But if you actually look at its volatility, it's only 8.5%. I mean, that's lower than gold. It's lower than emerging market local currency bonds. So very low volatility. So volatility is kind of hiding that risk of credit. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I suppose if you look at something like Lehman Brothers, it was probably not that volatile a stock and then all of a sudden goes to zero overnight. So this is the kind of risk you've got to be aware of because it's a kind of risk which just sneaks up on you at night, right? So you you don't see the price flopping around. You see very little price movement until, bam, the price goes to zero. Yeah, it's interesting. There definitely are those two buckets of risk, aren't there? There's that kind of everyday risk, up, down, markets are making me cry. And then there's the almost black swanny kind of risk of you just get punched in the face <laughs> out of nowhere. It's like that, just like that meme, and then it's gone. Yeah. You know, it's a South Park uh, cartoon. I read that someone had done an investing strategy where they bought a stock the first time it was mentioned on South Park. And it's actually outperformed significantly if you follow that strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got to say, I started playing Red Dead Redemption because it was on South Park. I cried when my horse died. Gerald (laughs) passed away and I I sobbed. I spent about three days on that game trying to get myself a raccoon hat. Oh, yeah, those are brilliant. (laughs) Laura gave me a lot of grief because I didn't feed Gerald enough. I didn't know how to feed him at the time. Yeah. It's like Tamagotchis, remember them? Yeah, I do, I do. He was like, you know, Gerald was like a Tamagotchi, but he was my best friend. He was brilliant. This is why I bought my daughter a Man United kit with Marcus Rashford's name on the back, just so I remember to feed her. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, moving on. There are various other kinds of risk, I think, involved, especially when it comes to bonds, which are particularly susceptible to moves in interest rates and inflation and things like that. So for bonds, the most important risk measure to look at is the duration of the fund. The way this works is it's measured in years. So duration tells you how many years you've locked in a fixed interest rate. So if the duration is zero, it's got a volatility of zero. It's very insensitive to interest rates. In fact, completely insensitive. And that's cash. And then if you increase the duration, say one year, two years, three years, then you gradually dial up the volatility. So if we look at the US one to three year treasury bond ETF, so that's ticker SHY, that's got a volatility of just over 1%. So in a typical year, the price moves up by 1% or down 1%, and that's what you'd expect. If you look at TLT, which is the 20-year-plus Treasury bond ETF, that's a really long-duration one for the US, that's got a volatility which is 14%. So that's comparable with gold, which is also 14%. And it's not much less than the S&P 500, which is 18%. So very, very volatile. So that's why the first thing you look at when you buy a bond fund is its duration, because it tells you the interest rate risk. So if interest rates are going up, the price of the bond will go down and you want shorter duration. If interest rates are going down, then the prices will go up and you want long duration because you want as much exposure to that as possible. 
So this is the measure you look at for bonds, and that'll tell you the interest rate risk and to some extent the credit risk as well. But you also need to look at the credit rating, which is a letter code. So AAA is the highest credit quality, then it goes AA, single A, triple B, double B. And once you go below triple B, as you go from triple B to double B, it gets downgraded to junk and the credit risk is much higher. There's a much higher probability that it'll go bust. So that's the way you'd measure credit risk. The risk which you can't get rid of is a liquidity risk, but you will be paid for taking that illiquidity risk in the case of bonds. It makes up a big chunk of the yield you receive. Almost everybody I speak to says, okay, I understand equity, but bonds, I just don't get them, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's because we know like a company and you kind of own a bit of the company. It makes sense, but a bond? But it's so funny because fixed income people always make fun of equity people because they say, oh, look, there's just a price that goes up and down. There's nothing to understand. <laughs> yeah, that's why we all understand it. <laughs> we don't have to actually understand anything. <laughs> but the risks are very different for a bond than they are for, say, equity. Well, you mentioned the interest rate risk. Presumably that does in some ways apply to equity. Like it seems to be when rates are rising, it's bad for equity in a way. And when they're being pushed down, it's good for equity, just less directly, I guess, than bonds. I mean, what people say is that for longer duration equity, and I think this is a bad concept for equity because they don't really have a duration like a bond. Infinite duration, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for growth stocks, they tend to have more sensitivity to interest rates because usually they're funded more heavily by corporate bonds perhaps that's the reason why they're more sensitive to interest rates. They have a poor credit quality. So if interest rates increase, it'll have a bigger negative impact on their bottom line. And also just a lot of their revenue is way out in the future. And if the risk-free rate's going up, then that makes the present value of that less. What is a risk-free rate, I wonder? Oh, let's come back to risk-free rates. So basically, <laughs> you can tell me why my understanding's bad, but it's like effectively the interest rate you get on short-duration US treasuries because they're the safest asset in the world, potentially. Yeah, because a lot of the risks are not there. Hugely liquid market, so very little liquidity risk. And the credit risk of the US government is almost non-existent. So why do we have this like dance every year or so where they pretend that they're going to default on their debt and not raise the debt ceiling? Well, the, the credit risk actually increases when they do that. And I think nobody wants to be remembered as the government which defaulted on US debt. I mean, that would blow up the financial system, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. And, and it would also have a generational impact on US government funding. You know, it would just cost them much more to fund their infrastructure, their military, their government. So, you know, they'd be crazy to do that. But why do we set the US government debt as the risk-free rate when, well, for example, there's companies like Microsoft who have a higher credit rating than the US, and then there's other governments like Germany who can borrow more cheaply. So why is it the US? I think governments generally tend to be more longer-lasting than companies. You know, even companies like Microsoft will come and go. So certainly for, for North America, the risk-free rate would be US treasuries. In Europe, we tend to use bunds, which are the German government bonds. Those are considered to be risk-free. So you always measure a spread relative to bunds. So this concept of the risk-free rate is so important because it's one way to judge the sort of extra yield you're being paid for taking all these other risks we've talked about. Yeah, and a lot of risk measures actually incorporate the risk-free rate into the calculation of return and risk. And I think there's a related concept, isn't there, of risk-adjusted return, where we're kind of trying to put all assets on an even playing field and looking at the volatile ones and how can we compare them to the less volatile ones and which is a better investment. For example, if you want to use something which is going to take that into consideration, you'd use something like a Sharpe ratio. So this was created by William Sharp. 
and he's got a Nobel Prize, so he obviously knows what he's talking about. And the idea is that you take the excess return, so that's the return above the risk-free rate, that goes into the numerator, and in the denominator, you work out the volatility of the excess return. So it's how many units of return you get for every unit of risk you've taken. And for an incredible fund, you'd get something like two, maybe, but that's pretty rare. So I like to think of it as you're looking at who's the best pound for pound boxer in the world. Because obviously, you know, a heavyweight will smash any lightweight, but that doesn't mean the lightweight might not be a better boxer. Yeah. So it's kind of weight of boxer adjusted punching (laughs) ability, if you like. I was trying to think of the right analogy. The other one I came up with was an ant can carry that very heavy leaf around, whereas, you know, I can carry a lot more than an ant. But if you scaled up an ant to human size, it could carry the Empire State Building, probably, something like that. I don't know. (laughs) It's probably a fact. I haven't looked up a fact. There's probably a fact. But, but, But the general idea is, you know, how do you compensate for the risk people take to achieve a certain goal? And I guess that's the key question, isn't it? When we're looking at this, we're trying to meet our goals. And there are all these risks to be aware of. And it's kind of hard to know what your own risk tolerance is, what to be particularly on the lookout for when you're building your portfolio. How would you go about trying to understand managing risk? Well, this is something we talk about a lot doing power hours. People often ask me to look at the portfolio and say, look, could you just critique what I've got? And it's always a kind of similar set of problems. You know, they've got a lot of perhaps single stocks and a lot of them are from similar sectors. And, you know, the risk is that they'll underperform, right? That the stock selection will fail and, you know, the concentration risk they've taken will be a a hindrance. Usually they've bought it during a period of euphoria. So they think, you know, that, oh, I'm really good stock picker. And they don't realise it's because of beta that they've outperformed. So concentration risk in an up market is a risk. And then not having enough risk after a downturn is another risk. I see a lot of people who de-risk when things get scary and their long term, that's going to underperform as a result. And just doing nothing is probably the best thing to do. Credit risk, you know, I see people taking a lot of large positions with single companies, which could, you know, if they're speculative companies, could go bust and they're not diversified enough. So, of course, now you can just buy the whole global equity market with one fund. And to beat that is actually very difficult in terms of diversification, but often also in terms of return. So I think those are the kind of typical problems. So those are the ones people are maybe underestimating. The one I feel a lot of people overestimate in long-term investing is currency risk. Everyone's focused on currency risk when really it's probably the least of your problems. Yeah, if you're a long-term investor, currencies don't drift, usually. If you look at the value of sterling versus the dollar and you look at it 100 years from now, would it be 100 times different or 1,000 times different? No. But would equity markets be a thousand times higher in a hundred years? It's quite possible and likely even. So that's why, you know, the drift with equity will come to dominate the non-drift for currency over the long term. And as you say, I think that's irrelevant. And yet people often ask me about that risk. Yeah, I see it come up all the time. And I've always think it's the wrong risk to focus on generally. Obviously, if you're investing for a short period of time or your currency is particularly volatile and you're in some form of bonds which are going to respond to that, then yes, it's important. But if you're buying global equity for long term... I think it's a risk you can kind of ignore. So that's one that often pops up as a question. But I often try to just say, look, here's historically what's happened to currency. Here's an equity benchmark over the same period of time. And you can't even see the currency on the plot. It's just a flat line. And as I understand it, the way you construct your portfolio and sort of marry different asset classes together is one of the best ways of diversifying and managing risk. It's quite an art to it, isn't there? 
And this is why I came up with the Scooby-Doo tree, which is a visual way of representing the correlation between assets. My original joke was that it was like characters in Scooby-Doo. How would you describe them? Well, you've got kind of clusters, right? You've got Scooby and Shaggy. They're the kind of crazy ones that involve all of the kind of plot twists and the fun bits. <laughs> but then... <laughs> But then you've got the kind of boring ones like Vilma, you know, she's out on a limb. She's very boring. And then you've got the preppy ones like Fred and Daphne. So you could kind of cluster them together in a tree. So preppies go together, crazies go together, and then Vilma goes out on a limb. You've done a brilliant job of explaining the plot points of Scooby-Doo, but I don't understand asset correlation yet. We're getting there. (laughs) Okay. So then what I did was map on the asset classes that were available in Vanguard. So if you look at equity, that's the kind of Scooby-Doo. So you've got US equity, that was Scooby. And then you've got European equity, that was Shaggy. Those two are closely related to each other. They're highly correlated. So if you choose one, you probably don't want the other as well. Then you've got the really boring stuff. That's Vilma. And that would be the government bonds in your local currency. And then you've got the kind of non-sterling government bonds, which would have a higher correlation with each other, but wouldn't be closely related to local government bonds. So that would be Fred and Daphne. It works really well if you know Scooby-Doo. You might have to update it for the sort of younger generation. (laughs) Weirdly enough, I find that everybody knows Scooby-Doo. It's true. It is uh, one of those rare things that's passed the test of time. Thank goodness for that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to explain the correlation cladogram quite so snappily. We should just be grateful you haven't done it with Star Trek characters. (laughs) But the basic idea here is you want to build a portfolio where, generally speaking, assets complement each other. Like when one goes up, the other will go down. And over the long term, it sort of will rise with less volatility than if you invested in any one asset class. So it's really just a way of visualising the correlation, yeah. So what you don't want is two assets which are essentially the same thing. So if you buy Canadian equity and US equity, effectively it's the same thing. If you buy US government bonds, generally they'll have a smaller correlation than two equities. And often the correlation is either zero or negative. During periods of high inflation, it does break down that negative correlation. It goes positive. But generally, over the long term, they will be uncorrelated. So that diversifies your portfolio. So if there is a big crash in one asset, then, you know, it preserves your capital. And these are kind of hedges in a way, aren't they? If your primary driver of return is equity, then you're kind of trying to hedge the volatility of equity. So if you want to sleep well at night, you want something that preserves your capital. So over the long term, the bonds will be a drag on performance. So the price for safety is lower return. And this leads actually to this idea of the efficient frontier. So ideally, of course, what you'd like is a high return and low risk. But what's beautiful is this idea by Merton, who came up with how to combine assets to minimise the volatility. And there's a certain combination of assets for any portfolio which minimises the risk. And there's also a portfolio which maximises the risk-adjusted return. That's called the maximum Sharpe ratio portfolio. So those two concepts are just beautiful. So this is modern portfolio theory. This is modern portfolio theory, yeah. Yeah, so the idea is if you can find that efficient recipe of ingredients of these different assets, then if you want to dial up the risk, you can take a bit more leverage. If you want to dial down the risk, take less leverage. But ultimately, you're buying this perfect blend. And it's astonishing. It's kind of like alchemy, where you've got two risky assets. You combine them in such a way that the combined volatility is less than either of them, which is incredible. Yeah, that is amazing. Are you going to tell us the magic formula or not? It's not something which is very succinct, I don't think. (laughs) Of course, it's based on lots of questionable assumptions, which are not true. 
but it's so beautiful, the model, that it's still used today, even though it's flawed. I think a lot of this comes back to, we need to understand what our personality is like, right? Because probably the biggest risk, having talked about all these sort of technical things, is ourselves, right? It's the behavioural risk that we do something wrong at the wrong time and it just devastates our long-term returns. One of the members-only videos, in fact, was for an index investor, a long-term index investor, which most of the people in our community are, what are the biggest risks? And there it's behaviour. Selling when markets fall, taking too much risk when markets are rising, getting caught up in the euphoria. I think those kind of cognitive biases are probably the biggest risk. And it's often insulting, it seems insulting, but I tell people the biggest risk to your portfolio is you. I mean, I think that's definitely true. So if you're a long-term index investor, the big risk is you sell when there's a crash. And there will be a crash, and there'll be another crash after that, and another one after that. So you're going to have to get used to the idea that you're going to have a 50% hit or whatever, and you can't sell. So I guess the point is, if you think you might sell when there's that huge 50% crash, you can't be 100% in equity. You need to try and understand yourself well enough before that happens. Which is one way to gauge how much equity you should have. Assume that there'll be a 50% drawdown, then you know if you'd have had a percentage in cash or short duration government bonds, then that wouldn't have lost its value. So that will dampen the loss. Let's say, for example, to make it easy, 50-50, cash and equity. Equity halves. If you've got a 100% equity portfolio, half of your wealth is gone. Whereas if it's 50% in equity, 50% cash, you'll only lose a quarter. You know, that's a useful way to think about it. When the crash comes, because it will, what loss would you be willing to sleep with at night without becoming really upset? But I think circumstances change. You know, job security changes. Your age obviously changes over time. All of these will feed into your risk appetite. And then there's a separate concept, which is risk capacity, which is how much could you afford to lose? So I speak to some people who've got maxed out defined benefit pensions, both the husband and the wife. And so there's nothing that could happen with their ISA say, which would even matter. You know, they're going to be fine in retirement. Yeah, it's bonus money. Yeah, exactly. It's holiday treats, inheritance money for the kids, maybe. So really, from their point of view, their risk capacity is huge. But even those people sometimes have a low risk appetite. They still don't like the idea of losing money because this is money they've set aside working hard their entire life. Yeah, and I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking about our risk appetite in a vacuum. So we think, oh, yeah, I could stomach 50% down, but there's a few things to consider there. Some people say in a crisis, correlations go to one. And what they mean is, oh, everything's going to fall together. But more likely, you might lose your job. Like if there's a crisis for a reason, lots of people lost their jobs in a financial crisis. So you might lose your income at the same time as your equity has gone down 50%. And the other thing is, you're probably not the only decision maker. You might be in a relationship and let's say your partner is much more risk averse than you. You're going to have a hard job explaining why you've lost half the family wealth. That's why it's so important if there is a plan, a kind of investment plan, that both of the partners are involved, or any involved parties, really. I think it's important to have that discussion before it happens. But inevitably, what I discover is that after a crash, I get all of these people saying, (laughs) I sold. I knew I said I wouldn't, but I sold. And always the answer is, well, I think this is just a learning experience to tell you what your risk appetite actually is. And it was maybe a mistake to have 100% equity. If you're concerned that your portfolio is too risky and you want to learn more about how to diversify, this is something we discuss all the time in PensionCraft's membership. To learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. 
And so today's dumb question of the week is related to the concept of risk. And it's what happens if my broker goes bust? You know, am I screwed? Have I just lost all my money? How does it work, Roman? Well, there is an FSCS guarantee in the UK, an equivalent scheme in the US and in other jurisdictions where the government will guarantee a certain amount of money. But usually it's not a lot compared to what people actually invest. So in the UK, we call it the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, the FSCS. And that's a limit of 85k per person, per broker. Now, the idea is that there are certain restrictions in place as to what the broker can do with your money. They can't mix up their money, the firm money, and your money. So if there is a bankruptcy of the broker, they don't have recourse to your assets. Or at least if they do try to get recourse to your assets, there'll be a very clear distinction between your money and theirs. Yeah, that's how it should work. It should be this segregation. But you've got to remember that the broker is in control of that segregated nominee account, as it's called. So if there's fraud, the money might not be there. Yeah, there's always that risk if there is fraud. Now, the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, will monitor companies to ensure that they do this segregation if it's an authorised company. So always check that your broker is authorised. That provides you with a certain amount of safety, if you like. Yeah, and what they're authorised for. So there'll be a list of the activities they can carry out. And sometimes there are cloned companies which have the same name, which are also listed on the register from the Financial Conduct Authority. So in the UK, just Google Financial Services Register, and that'll take you to fca.org.uk, and all of the companies which are registered with the FCA will be listed. And all of the major brokers are. Like, it's, <laughs> there's not going to be a surprise with, you know, Vanguard or Hargreaves Lansdowne or something. Yeah. Just make sure that it's not a clone. The fraud indicator is if they've contacted you, it's probably a fraud. Yeah, hang up the phone. <laughs> yeah, because generally they won't, right? They won't contact you if it's a decent company. So once it's authorised, it does come with this FSCS guarantee. Yeah, so that's some consolation. But as you say, in the UK, the cap is 85,000, which you might be able to be reimbursed. The other thing to say is that the probability of one of the large brokers going bust is very low. So amongst the really big ones, like Hargreaves Lansdowne, like Vanguard, like Interactive Investor, the default rate is very low. So just check whether it's one of the big ones. And if you do veer from one of the big companies, just be really careful and check out the company in a huge amount of detail. Yeah, because we're asking this like it's a hypothetical question, but there have been examples of brokers going bust in the UK. But these were kind of, they were authorised companies. Don't take me wrong, but I think these were very small companies. Yeah, so they were small. So one example is Beaufort Securities, which it was a kind of weirdly complicated story with an investigation from the FBI and money laundering. And they tried to buy a Picasso artwork with <laughs> some laundered money. It was very strange, but basically they, they were up to no good. And the FCA said, hmm. Probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> and they kind of went under. But in some ways, it was an eye opener because I was thought, okay, there's this segregation. People, yeah, their money might be tied up for a while. Their assets, they might not be able to get hold of them while the process works through. But interestingly, the administrators came in and they said, oh, we need to be paid to do this administration work. We're going to have to get that money from somewhere. So there was this question of, oh, is it going to be drawn from people's investments? In the end, there was a deal done between the FCA and the administrators to stop that happening. But no, it could happen. Your money isn't kind of ultimately safe. But let's imagine that it's a small company. Well, there, the assets that they manage will be relatively small. Whereas if it's someone like Vanguard, who has about 7 trillion in assets, then how much of their assets would they have to sell? Or of your assets would they have to sell to pay off their creditors? It's tiny. Whereas for a small company, 
I think the amount they'd have to pay off would be much more. But also the probability of a company like Vanguard going bust is much lower. So this is why I think, you know, the credit risk that we were talking about earlier also applies to the counterparty, which is the broker. Yeah, another company that went bust was SVS Securities. Now that did a wide variety of different authorised activities. So you'll be able to see on the FCA register what they're allowed to do. And one of the activities which it did was as a discretionary fund manager. Discretionary just means that they do stuff at their discretion, the manager, not yours. So you give them your money, they invest it and hopefully get good returns. Unfortunately, in the case of SVS, they had some model portfolios which were hugely concentrated in just one issuer. These were Ireland-listed bonds issued by a company called Corporate Finance Bonds Limited, CFBL. Now, for some of these model portfolios, the concentration was really high. There was actually an inspection by the FCA. They actually went on site. They complained about this concentration. (laughs) And then you can almost hear the sigh of despair from the FCA in their description when they say, um, in response to the authority on 1st of February 2019, SVS acknowledged this concentration risk and the need to reduce it. But then they say, (laughs) despite the concerns expressed in January 2018, SVS has in fact increased the exposure... (laughs) of its model portfolios to CFBL's bonds. And they actually increased the exposure for one of their funds, the income fund, from 53% to 78%. Yeah. So can you imagine just one issuer who nobody's heard of? The vast majority of the capital was exposed to this one issuer. Mm, I wonder why. (laughs) And then the fees were just crazy. It was like, you know, they took sometimes 20%. There's your answer. (laughs) So, you know, there are various red flags. I mean, that's borderline scam, isn't it? Oh, it is a scam, I think. I mean, it was shut down by the FCA, so although it was authorised, they did go on top of it. But, you know, people will have lost money. I mean, I would be reluctant to put all my eggs in one basket. Like if I had, say, a million pounds net worth, personally, I wouldn't put that all in one broker. I know you're more sanguine about that risk. But I just think there's two things, right? The broker could go bust and then, you know, everything will be held up at the very least. Or if you do get hacked or something, all your money's in one place and can be taken. I'd rather split it. You might pay higher fees because you exceed certain caps. But for me, that would be a risk worth taking. Yeah, I I just don't feel that kind of worry. But I I do split my accounts because of the kind of fun portfolio. I have to have that on a separate platform because Vanguard's not fun. So (laughs) I I can't buy anything slightly dodgy so I can lose money on their platform. But yeah, I think a lot of people I speak to are quite scared of that risk. But I think in terms of where it ranks on the scale of risks, I'd say the you risk, your behaviour, is much higher than even market risk. But then market risk comes second, then I'd say well down the list would come something like platform risk. Yeah, I agree with that. I just think there are benefits to separating them. Like you just said one, right? It's keeping your fund portfolio separate from your core Vanguard one is something that might, if you went a bit crazy, at least put some barriers in between you doing something ridiculous with your core portfolio because you'd have to sell it and move it all to the new broker to buy your options. (laughs) Oh, crazy finds a way, Michael. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Keep sending us your questions at mhr at pensioncraft.com and we'll tackle them in the coming episodes. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. 
We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take, and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.